Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. To Danny Ron, when you enter any shop or place of business, at the front entrance, you might see a picture of an oyster. Below the image reads, Women are the pearl, the veil is the shell. Your veil will protect you. When you walk the streets of Iran, graffitied in red on the city's walls, you might see a famous Islamic phrase from the first imam of Shiite Islam. It reads, Women are like basil leaves. You need to protect them. The Islamic regime in Iran today has made women symbols of purity, delicacy, and fragility. These symbols communicate women need protection because women are fundamentally weak. These messages are omnipresent, and so they're hard to interrupt, to challenge, How do you fight a picture of an oyster or a wall of graffiti? These symbols create a new reality, subliminally, one where gender apartheid is treated as if it were normal, where women are second-class citizens, and it's all under the guise of men's benevolence and protection. Segregation then seems natural, even beneficial. To understand the battle over Iran's soccer stadiums, it's crucial to recognize that the battle of women's rights in Iran is a battle of symbols. I'm Shimo Liai from Shirazad Productions. And from 30 for 30 Podcasts, this is Pink Card, Episode 2, The Mannequins. No, that's totally... Wait, I want to make sure this is okay. I just... I should tell you, you need some coffee and some water. During this? Uh-huh. Oh, shoot. You can order. You can order coffee. Room, room service. I met the Iranian writer and activist Merengiz Kar in my hotel room in the winter of 2021 in Washington, D.C. You are Shima, yeah? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm Shima. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm not a good Persian. Uh, no, good Persian. Why, yes. My first order of business was getting some hot coffee for my guests. I got it. Oh, good. <laughs> good, thank you. Do you have your coffee black? Yes, I love it. Merengiz lives alone. She's a decade older than my mother. Now I am 77. Wow. 
Okay. A little older than you, probably one year. <laughs> Merengi's car is an Iranian legend. She famously wrote for Zenon magazine, at the time the country's most popular and influential women's publication. She dissected Iran's judicial process and excavated Islamic texts to argue for women's independence. Merengiz was arrested and sent to prison for, quote, waging propaganda against the Islamic regime, end quote. When she was released from prison, she found her way to the U.S. and has never returned to Iran. Merengiz grew up in the same place as Zainab, the young soccer fan we met in the last episode, a city called Atvaz. It's known as the city of bridges. Merengiz remembers it as peaceful. This was the 1960s. She had an older brother who taught her political philosophy. She loved reading books, swimming, riding roller coasters, and shopping for hats. She loved going to school most of all. Everything in the school was very modern. And our dressing was very beautiful. Our hair was very simple style. She showed me a photo of herself from this time. In it, she wears a long sleeve floral print mini dress with big earrings and a beehive with bangs. During that time, many girls and women in Iran wore their hair in the style of a bob. They donned bell bottoms, lots of pastel skirts, short shorts, cleavage, and pumps. Merengiz moved to the capital Tehran at 18. She studied politics and began law school at Tehran University. And Tehran University was amazing. The atmosphere was two gender. They were studying together in the classroom, outside classroom, in cafeteria. And our professors all the time, they were saying, you are the future governor in this country. You are the future membership of parliament, you are going to be high position in political jobs. If we were getting ready for that. Did you know what was coming? No. A number of people were trampled in the crowd. Others were struck by cars and motorbikes as people tried to keep up with the procession. The crowds grew even larger. In 1979, the year of the revolution, Merengiz was 35 years old. She was a law student and also a journalist. So every day, she was reporting from the streets. Everywhere she turned was packed with protesters. Young people shouted, death to the dictator. And it looked as though Iran was going to establish a new democracy. Then the Shah fled. The King of Kings leaves the peacock throne in Iran. By his departure today, he has almost certainly brought to an end the two-and-a-half-thousand-year history of the Persian-Iranian monarchy. The Shah fled the country same day as my mom. Merengiz stayed and witnessed it all, and she did her best to write down and publish everything she saw. The 50,000 volunteer marshals along the route were no match for the hundreds of thousands of Khomeini followers in the streets of Tehran. The Ayatollah Khomeini was a leader in the Islamic clergy, living in Paris in the 70s after the Shah kicked him out of Iran. But Khomeini had support from the U.S. and the U.K. They thought he'd be amenable to their demands. And on February 1st, with their support, Khomeini was flown into Iran to take power. 
March 8th, International Women's Day, was supposed to be a celebration for the ending of a dictatorship. But the day before, women who were government officials, nurses, scientists, any woman with a public-facing job, received notice that she would need to wear the hijab in order to go to work. Immediately, they understood that it is not advised, it is order. Merengiz arrived at Tehran's Judiciary Building, where she heard there was a demonstration happening, led by women. I was there. What was that like? It, it was like uh, a kind of revolution against some part of revolution. After fighting so hard for more freedom in their country, the women were shocked to find that they were the first population to have their freedom restricted. That is the reason women became so angry. People, they were coming, coming, and the building was full, and the street, the street was full of women who were saying no. What was supposed to be a women's celebration instead became a protest over the new hijab mandates. After two or three weeks, immediately, you can understand that this revolution is happening against you. It is a very big shock. They could not believe that. As snow fell from the sky, tens of thousands of veiled and unveiled women marched side by side through the streets of Tehran their fists in the air, shouting that they would not go back in time. It was the first time that women, they could understand that uh, this revolution uh, could be against them, more than against Shah, <laughs> you know? The women's chant, Azadi, Azadi, shouting for freedom, echo through the streets as men jeered at them, chased them into alleyways and exposed themselves. But the women would not back down. Efforts to establish a permanent Islamic Republic have run into trouble on several fronts. One of those is the women's rights movement. We were for Haiti, but now we are for freedom. Today's demonstrations brought to the surface Iran's simmering post-revolutionary tension. Men who were followers of Khomeini, they were saying, you are bitch, you are something against our mothers. We say Fohshaya Namusi. Some women were physically attacked. Some had acid thrown in their faces. I was running because uh, I was afraid that something happened. I was very, very careful that not arrested by them. I could die. This was my fear. At the end of the protest, the clerics retracted their statement regarding mandatory hijab. The clerics called a meeting and broadcast on television that it was a misunderstanding. And so the women quieted triumphant.
And then one morning, Merengiz is out shopping with her daughter when she notices something strange. The mannequins. In the summer of 79, in the weeks following the women's protests, she saw several mannequins lined up against a shop wall for inspection. In an essay she published years later, she described exactly what she saw. I witnessed with my own eyes armed officials entering a clothes shop with their guns. They pointed to the naked legs of a female mannequin and stared into the frightened face of the shop owner. Tehran, Iran's capital, was once called the fashion capital of the Middle East. Thousands of clothing shops displaying the hottest Parisian trends lined the streets. The mannequins in the shop windows had long, colorful hair, short skirts, eyelashes, and made-up faces. But now, every other day, an officer from a newly organized section of police, the Comité, or the Morality Police, showed up at a shopkeeper's window, pointed his gun at a mannequin, and asked... Where is her veil? I was laughing. My daughter was laughing when we were walking. We couldn't understand that, oh, this is message. Why we are laughing at it? Very, very hard message to women. Bad message. Full of dangerous message. This is your future. The shopkeepers took fabric and wrapped it around the mannequin's fake hair. This happened to thousands of mannequins in thousands of shops throughout the city. The police would not leave a shop until they had approved the uniform. They were already veiled, but this wasn't enough. They then asked why an inch of hair could still be seen through the veil. The shopkeepers fixed the veils to cover the full head of the mannequins. The police approved, but returned again the next day. Their blushing cheeks, their adorned eyelashes remained visible. But the authorities could no longer tolerate these attractive faces. The police pointed to the rouge of the mannequin's lipstick. So the shopkeepers erased the color from the mannequin's faces. Expressions were removed completely. Merengis was watching, observing. When the police came back and complained about the mannequin's nail polish, they took the mannequin to storage and and cut wrist. (laughs) They cut it. No eyebrows, no noses, no mouths, no hands. After the hair was lost, their spongy breasts were slashed from their bodies. Instead, the owners installed two little coils on the empty spots so that the feminine gender might modestly be suggested beneath the ample Islamic garments. They replaced the mannequin's breasts with metal wire. After months of torment by police, the shop owners took the mannequins to their basements and... Decapitated. They beheaded the mannequin, and instead that, they were putting something like this. A diagonal surface replaced the neck of these beheaded dolls on which the owners had now thrown long, dark scarves. The beheaded mannequins were left with only a round face made out of cardboard. The ideal woman for fundamentalists was a woman who did not have eyes to see, tongue to speak, and legs to run away. 
I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Within only a few years, all Iranian women would be forced to wear the veil. The very thing that Merengiz had laughed at, the submission of the mannequins, was now her real life. Before 79, the veil had been worn by many women willingly. But after the revolution, the government used the veil as a new form of policing, a way to detain and punish women. Men in vans picked up any woman without a proper veil. It wasn't enough to merely wear a scarf on one's head. The hair had to be fully covered. And the scarf itself could only be black, dark blue, or dark gray. Dead, dead colors. The atmosphere in Iran became one of terror and ruthless oppression. The revolution washed away all the gleeful colors of our lives. The interesting thing is, just four decades prior, the father of the Shah had mandated that all women be unveiled. Now they were demanding the opposite, Either way, women had no choice in the matter. Why do you think Khomeini put such an emphasis on the veil? The way we are, the way we feel, the way we dress, the way we walk, they replaced our individual image with a uniform image which is symbolized in the veil. This is Azar Nafisi, a writer and professor. Her most famous book is Reading Lolita in Tehran. And so we all become figments of the Ayatollah's imagination rather than being real. Azar remembers when the hijab mandate came down. She wrestled with whether she should wear it to keep her job or refuse out of principle. I remember one person telling me, why don't you just wear it? It's just a piece of cloth. I told him, it's not just a piece of cloth. It symbolizes something. I don't want my students even my Islamic students who had seen me without the veil last week now see me with the veil and know that I have done it in order to not be expelled, in order to make money. More and more mandates were announced to censor their bodies in the public sphere. Tight pants, skirts, and dresses were outlawed. Coats had to be longer than one's knees. One body part was hidden after the other. 
Even if girls played sports, they could no longer do so with boys and were forced to play with the heavy clothing and their new uniform. Throughout a game, the hijab could not come off. The ruling fundamentalists considered the individual identity of women as the most perilous to their enduring power. They needed to destroy that identity. Women were visibly redacted from public life, and the redactions bled even to any display of emotion. Singing and dancing in public became forbidden. Even eye contact could lead to violence. Following that, everything became segregated by gender. The beaches, the buses, schools, parks. Women knew they were safest if they could just become invisible. The state did not merely punish criminals. It was there to flog and jail girls for wearing nail polish, Reebok shoes, or lipstick. It was there to watch over young girls appearing in public. The joy had gone out, you know, was forbidden, basically. What is the meaning of that? That is how they control you. Any kind of expression of joy is hazardous to their health. When my daughter was growing up, she was in love with soccer. I remember the way she bloomed when she went to play, you know, that feeling of happiness. happiness. Because freedom is like happiness. And Marengi says freedom. Social freedom is very important, especially for women. Because without social freedom, women cannot think about political freedom. One of the last places in the country where women could go to cheer or scream was the National Soccer Stadium. There are many, many crazy things. The one where Frank Sinatra sang. Loving you. And with your permission, may I list a few. Then, in the fall of 1981, two years after the revolution, After the beheading of the mannequins, women arrive at the stadium gates to watch a game in their new attire. Veils, heavy pants, the full regalia in coarse black fabric. At the gates of Azadi Stadium, the women are blocked by guards and told to go home. They were no longer allowed inside. When the women argued they should be allowed to enter, the guards laughed and told them they were banned. All across Iran, they could no longer watch soccer in public. They said women were too delicate to be alongside men in such a rowdy environment. That they needed to be protected from the temptation of the men's bare legs. Also, the stadium had been renamed. It was no longer called Ariamer. It was now Azadi Stadium. In Farsi, Azadi means freedom.
Azadi is the word the women shouted as they marched for the rights they'd now lost. As I've been reporting the story, I've spoken to dozens of women, Iranian activists and writers, who argue over the importance of the stadium ban. Some say that the stadium is a silly thing to focus on when the country suffers from drought, poverty, and human rights abuses. But to me, the stadium matters for the same reason the mannequins matter. These symbols had real-life impact. They created a new world. Symbols in Iran were used to instill fear and communicate to all women, you are weak like basil, delicate like a pearl. We must protect you. But a symbol can be taken back and redefined. Basil in the wild can be poisonous. A pearl ingested can choke you. And a veil can be mounted on a stick and lifted as a flag. Or burned as a torch. In banning women from the national soccer stadium, the regime revoked their identity as full citizens. But they simultaneously made women's bodies the barometer for measuring the power of the new dictatorship in Iran. And if you name a stadium freedom and ban women from it, you give women the place where they can go to take their freedom back. So the stadium is symbolic. Yes, very symbolic. But I should add this one. This is very serious war with dictatorship. They are getting weak in a struggle with women. They say, do that, do this. But they don't, they cannot. They cannot control women. They cannot control women and they cannot control young generation. The next generation will have no memory of how the mannequins used to look, their rouge lips and their caramel-colored long hair, or of women and men cheering side-by-side side at the soccer stadium. They will only know a world where public spaces are off-limits, where they are told they need protection, and that protection comes from the regime. In the next episode, we'll see how the national stadium, Azadi, becomes a battlefield. We'll follow a group of women who make it their mission to infiltrate the stadium. I scream, my leg is broken. Oh, help, help. Ambulance is coming with pew, 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 pew. Troops push their boots to our back. Where did you hide the radio? I, I hold it in my hand under my magnae, under my scarf. So you couldn't see that. I love that the <laughs> scarf hit the radio. Yes. <laughs> what the freak? It was magical moment, like miracle. That in episode three. Pink Card was created and hosted by me, Shimoliai, and our associate producer is Homa Sarabi. Audio mixing and original music is by Ramtian Arablui. 
Editing by Sarah Cavedo. Megan Rapino, Sue Bird, and myself, Shimol Yai, are executive producers. Our production coordinator is Marisa Bravo, and we had help from Diva Mochisham. Nisa Azakizadeh wrote our theme song. A huge thank you for the voice of our talents of Sarah Shahi and Farsi translation by Homa Sarabi. A very special thanks to Nina Ansari, Mariam Shojai, Minky Warden, Hadi Gayemi, Ramin Golbang, Moya Dodd, Glorivet Samosa, Melinda Romero, and everyone at the Center for Human Rights in Iran. At 30 for 30 Podcasts, Marsha Cook is executive producer, Eve Tro is senior editorial producer, Kat Sankey is line producer, and Gus Navarro is associate producer. Licensing support from Jennifer Thorpe and director of development is Adam Newhouse.